In the 1930s, there was a woman who was baking cookies, and she was using a recipe that dated back to colonial times for butter cookies. And so she wanted to do a little twist on the recipe. So wanting to make chocolate-flavored cookies, she cut up a Nestle chocolate bar and put the chunks in the batter, expecting them to melt. Twenty minutes later, she figured that the chocolate would have melted and she would take chocolate-flavored cookies out of the oven. Instead, what she got were butter cookies studded with gooey chocolate chips. That was a failure. But her mistake became one of the most favorite cookies of all times. And so we could qualify that as a successful failure. Things didn't go the way that she expected, but the end result was better than, than she anticipated. And it turned out really sweet and yummy. We could also describe the Christian life and serving our Savior Jesus Christ as a successful failure as well. The hardships are many. The disappointments are not rare. We heard about the hardships that Terry and Lori and Eric and Adriana face on a regular basis. There's going to be people who want to take all the sweetness out of your life. They want to sour you so you look sour like they do. Yet all the things that God has done for us in Jesus Christ and all the things that he wants to continue to do in us and through us and how he wants to make us into the image of his dear son for his glory, all of these far outmatch and outweigh even the worst of what the world, the flesh, and the devil throws at us. This morning in our studies, we trace the life and ministry of Barnabas in the book of Acts as Barnabas takes a little bit of a back seat, playing second fiddle now to, to Paul the Apostle. We're going to see failures, we're going to see successes, but because of God and because of what he accomplished through the teaching and the preaching of Barnabas and, and Paul, we can call their ministry in a place called Pisidian Antioch a successful failure. Didn't turn out the way that Paul expected, probably not the way Barnabas expected, but the end result was for the glory of God and was even better than anticipated. So we're going to see failures this morning. Gentiles who didn't quite belong to the Jewish synagogue, they were proselytes and were still a little bit of outsiders. We see a missionary who leaves the mission field out of disgrace. People who couldn't hear enough one week, they wanted to get more. They wanted to hear more of what Paul and Barnabas had to say. But the very next week, being filled with jealousy, they argue with Paul and Barnabas and they're going to run them out of town. They're going to stir up the prominent people of the city. And uh, we'd say today, run them out on a rail. But we also see successes. People who, despite their failures and being outsiders of the things of God, are called into the kingdom of God. A church that looked weak on the outside, but on the inside, it was flourishing in the things that are the, the most important. And so we can take a lot from this this morning. So please turn once again to the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, beginning at verse 13 again. It's where we left off last week with an initial failure, a casualty of spiritual warfare. Verse 13 of Acts chapter 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos. They're in, in Cyprus at this time. And they came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, we'd probably want to say if, if John Mark was on this mission trip with us, now, now hang in there, cheer up, things could be worse, and sure enough, what? Things got worse. <laughs> in verse 13 of Acts chapter 13, the companions of Paul 
who were Barnabas and John Mark at this time, begin to move from a very tough place to even a tougher place. And it probably had a lot to do with why John Mark cut and run. They sailed from the Happy Isle of Cyprus to the rock cliffs of Perga on the southern Mediterranean shore, 150 miles away. Ahead of them lay the Taurus Mountains. Paul later says in his letters that he didn't preach in Perga where they landed because of an illness. He was sick. So as Barnabas and and Paul are going to brave the treacherous mountains of the Taurus, they're going to do it while Paul is ill. I I can understand a little bit why John Mark says, I just can't, can't do this. The Taurus Mountains were noted for being perilous. They had terribly fast river torrents that were spanned by very weak bridges supported by a few swaying ropes. I remember one of those times up the Payette River north of here where there's all those rapids, some of the best rapids in the world, the kayakers and those kind of guys, they really love it. But uh, we used to hunt on this spot on the wrong side of the river. And, you know, we would cross this footbridge, you know, that's suspended by ropes and the ropes are fraying. And, you know, my dad, he, did, he was in World War II as a medic. He didn't worry about any of that kind of stuff. I'll just keep going. We're good. <laughs> you know, they finally replaced the bridge with a better one. But there's all those kinds of, of bridges in the Taurus Mountains. The robbers lurked in the stony cracks and crevices. The Roman government had even tried to get the robbers out of there, but uh, there were so many caves and hiding places that not even the Roman army could route that part of the world of the robbers. It was a terrible, terrible, horrible, perilous thing to even be in those, those mountains. And Paul very much describes this trip when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers Dangers from robbers. But what awaits Paul and Barnabas on this missionary journey is in the next the rest of that verse in, in 1 Corinthians. Paul continues, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. These are all the kinds of people and all the kinds of things who want to take the sweetness of Jesus Christ out of your life, and they don't want you to give the gospel to anybody else. Verse 14 of Acts chapter 13 describes the arrival of Paul and Barnabas in a town called Pisidian Antioch. Verse 14, but going on from Perga, that was on the seashore there, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch on the other side of the Taurus Mountains, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, this is Pisidian Antioch. This is a different Antioch. There's all kinds of towns that were named Antioch. They're all named after the Antiochus rulers of of, of Syria. Alexander the Great named something like 30 cities after him. There's Alexandrias all over the world because uh, these guys thought it was cool. Or sometimes the current ruler of that uh, place would name a town after the ruler uh, so they could gain, gain his favor. So after this... This uh, horrible journey, they come into a place, we call it Turkey today in Asia Minor. Now this region was known at the time as Galatia. Does that sound familiar? The, the, the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia would have been to these churches that were founded on this missionary journey. Verse 15, after reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, now sent to them was they had been in the synagogue, it was apparently a large synagogue because the next Sabbath, The whole town's going to show up. 
And uh, so, you know, sent to them, you know, maybe those guys in the back, we don't know who they are. That was common practice. If you had visitors to the synagogue to ask them to, if they had anything to say. And as I mentioned last week, that's like turning on a fire hose if you ask Paul if he has anything to say. And what he had to say was the sermon that uh, we read here. So we skip over the sermon part and come over to verse uh, 42 of Acts chapter 13. This is where we're going to pick it up. In verses 42 through 52, we see both the positive and the negative responses to the gospel. We see the successful failure of Paul and Barnabas' ministry. We see those who respond in faith to Jesus Christ, but we also see those who reject the word of God. The word of God, as the prophet said, as the psalmist said, is not always, not always isn't sweet as honey to them. The psalmist said, how sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Yet there are many who don't like the taste, but can't take the flavor. And they will do whatever it takes to sour it for somebody else. And the initial reaction to Paul's sermon, of his message of the gospel was favorable, but that would soon change. And so we, we see in verse 42, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, that's what every preacher wants to hear. Come back next week and tell us the same stuff. We want to hear more. That was really good stuff. Paul's dynamic presentation of the Messiah had piqued their interest, and they wanted to hear more. As, as you heard, Paul's message was steeped in the Old Testament of God's word. He, he was speaking to Jews in the synagogue. He had spoken of God's sovereign choice and care for Israel. He had referred to Israel's greatest king, David, and, and referred to the prophets, and he quoted the Psalms. And there was nothing objectionable in that message until his naming of Jesus of Nazareth, who was raised from the dead, as being their Savior, their, their Messiah, their long-awaited Messiah. But they were persistent in this, verse 43. Now, when the meaning of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes, those were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas. Now, they followed them, and the discussion keeps going as they leave the synagogue. And then it says, they followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were trying were urging them to continue in the grace of God. These people kept up a running dialogue with Paul and Barnabas as they walked through the streets of Antioch. Now, there's a couple of things here that give us a little bit of a clue that Paul and Barnabas knew that things were not quite as good as it seemed. So why didn't Paul and Barnabas just stop and continue their discussion with them? It seemed that they had fish on the hook, as it were. Why not just reel them in? Why not just reel them in? Well, one thing, it's the Holy Spirit's job to reel them in, not theirs. And secondly, we can see why what Paul and Barnabas encouraged them to do, that, there wasn't, that this wasn't the time to extend an invitation. There was still something here that they were professing some things, but did they really believe them and those kind of things? So Paul and Barnabas, it says, urged them to continue in the grace of God. What does that mean? The word translated urge actually means to persuade. And it's in an imperfect tense, which means it's in the past, but it's, it's constant, it's continuing. They were continually trying to persuade them to remain in the grace of God. 
In other words, these were people who are not yet fully persuaded. Notice that the verse doesn't say anything about salvation. It doesn't say that they were saved. It doesn't say that they, they received Christ. It doesn't use the word believed. In fact, we're going to see their lack of faith and their lack of belief as we go down through here in the next few verses. Lots of people seem to be excited about Jesus until they've had time to think about it. Or they hear something that they don't like. Or they hear something they don't agree with then they will shut you off like an old spigot. Paul and Barnabas knew that these people were going to think about the things that they had heard. And what the Greek text literally says is, they constantly tried to persuade them to wait a little longer in the grace of God. Try to stay in God's grace. Don't let your thinking take you someplace else. The seed had been planted. Now it was time to see what was going to happen to it. Remember how the Lord Jesus said it? He said, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell along the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Paul and Barnabas constantly tried to persuade them to wait a little longer in the grace of God. Let the seed of God's word do its work. And verse 44 of Acts chapter 13 sounds great. At first, it sounds like the seed of God's word had begun to germinate, that the word of God had been sweet to their tastes. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Well, I know what I'd be thinking. I'm not sure what Paul and Barnabas were thinking. They probably had better insight than I do. But this is great. Get the bus. and We've got it going now. This is, you know... Let, let's build our new sound system. We've got to get it done right now. Let's, let's really get this thing going. And, uh, you know, but Paul and Barnabas, we know they would have been praying all week about the next opportunity to proclaim Christ. They would have been praying for these people who this, whom the seed had been planted. But they also knew that it had not all seemed good from the week before. And just like on Cyprus, in that run-in with the false prophet named Bar-Jesus, they ran into opposition. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. When I had the joy and blessing of attending the Promise Keepers Clergy Conference in Atlanta, Georgia, I was looking forward to meeting with 44,000 pastors from, from all over the country and some from all over the world. And literally meeting with these pastors and worshiping with them and hearing the great preachers of the day. Chuck Swindoll was there, John MacArthur, Max Licato, Chuck Smith, Jack Hayford. They were, they were all there. And I was looking forward to hearing God's word proclaimed and worshiping. And when our group of, of three of us drove to the Georgia Dome in, in Atlanta... We had to park in a vacant parking lot that was quite a ways from, from the dome because they depend on their metro rail to get people there, and there's just, there's just not enough parking. So anyway, we parked quite a ways, and we paid some guy five bucks so we could park in a vacant lot, and we 
couldn't quite see the dome and stuff, and we're walking up this hill and up this grade, and pretty soon the Georgia Dome comes into view, and then I noticed there's a large old school bus that's been painted. It looked like what I used to call a hippie bus out there. I go, well, that, that's kind of odd. And, but as we got closer, I could read the slogans on this painted bus, and they had a big loudspeaker that was blaring out, all pastors and preachers are going to hell. You are of your father the devil. You are all false prophets, false shepherds. They quoted Isaiah. They quoted all kinds of scripture. Hear ye the word of the Lord. I said to the pastors with me, yeah, we've come to the right place. <laughs> this must be it. If God was going to do a great work in our hearts, if God was going to do a work in our lives and in our ministries, Satan was going to do whatever and, and use whoever he could to work against us, no matter how outrageous it might seem. How sad that people who attack Christians and pastors think they're doing the work of God. At Antioch, the initial reaction of the gospel then got ugly. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. One week they were begging to hear more, and the next week on account of their jealousy, they argued with Paul and Barnabas, and they even resorted to blasphemy. The root of their jealousy, of course, was their racial prejudice. They were the Jews, they said. They, they're God's chosen people. They had thought about it all week, and, and they'd come to their own foolish conclusions. And all these Gentiles showed up to hear Paul and Barnabas, and they freaked. That's nothing new. Turn for a moment back to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah between Obadiah and Micah, does that help? <laughs> Toward the end of the Old Testament, if you're using the Bible in the rack, it's page 1146. There's, there's a good reason to use those. Jonah chapter 4. When we get to the fourth chapter of Jonah, Jonah had been called of God to preach repentance in the city of Nineveh and tell them what God was going to do to them, a Gentile city. He refused to preach until a big fish copped him up on the seashore and as a result of Jonah's less than enthusiastic preaching, nevertheless, the people of Nineveh believed in God and repented. And what was Jonah's response? He was so upset he wanted to die. Verse 1 of Jonah chapter 4. When Jonah saw that the Lord relented of all that calamity, it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Prejudice and jealousy is a horrible thing that can, can totally consume a person, can drive a person to ruin because they seek the ruin, ruin of others. How amazing that people believe that seeking the ruin of others is the right thing to do. Verse 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jealousy totally messes up a person's ability to reason properly. Lord, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, that you would not visit calamity upon these people if I preached to them, so that's why I fled to Tarshish, because you're going to be compassionate towards them. And what was Jonah's answer to all of this? Verse 3. 
Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. There's a fable about an eagle who could be outflown by another eagle, and the lesser eagle didn't like the other eagle outflying him. So the lesser eagle saw a sportsman one day and said to him, I wish you would bring down that other eagle. The sportsman replied that he would only if he had some feathers to put in his arrow. So the eagle pulled out a feather out of his wing. The arrow was shot into the air and it missed for the other eagle was flying too high. The envious eagle pulled out more feathers and kept pulling them out and the archer kept flying or shooting at the other other eagle. And then the sportsman turned around and killed the eagle who could no longer fly, and that's the way jealousy is. It hurts the one who is jealous. Nothing so infuriated the Jews as the thought that the blessings of salvation might be extended to the despised Gentiles. That thought filled them with jealousy, and not only that, it stirred them to action. They began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. They started arguing. They started wrangling over words, as as Paul told Timothy that we shouldn't do. The imperfect tense says that they were continually speaking with Paul and, and Barnabas, attempting to refute them. And then they go where no man should go. But it's where all this took them. And they were blaspheming. You might remember that it was for the sin of blasphemy, falsely accused against Jesus Christ, for which they found grounds to crucify him. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy literally means to speak evil. Speak evil. To speak evil of God. To speak evil of Jesus Christ. To speak evil of who God is and what he does. By speaking evil of God in Christ, they rejected their hope for salvation, they made it clear that their initial profession, where they wanted to hear more, was shallow, it was, it was false. And this is a tragic, tragic verse in Acts. Jesus said that any sin can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Let me say to begin with, I don't think a true believer, I know a true believer in Jesus Christ can't can't blaspheme the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is in us. But in the context of when Jesus said that, what would have been happening? The scribes and the Pharisees had seen the miracles that Jesus had performed. They knew they were of God. The scribes and the Pharisees had heard the words that Jesus had said. They knew that they were of God. They had heard his teaching. They had come to understand on a fully intellectual level who Jesus really was. And having that knowledge, they openly rejected Jesus Christ and they attributed his miracles to Beelzebub, the prince of demons, Satan. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit means to have everything necessary to come to faith in Christ. To understand who Jesus is and then willfully reject him. In other words, it's ultimate unbelief. In a simplest sense, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit means to attribute the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to Satan. To see the Holy Spirit, to experience the Holy Spirit and say, that's demonic, that's, that's Satan. Jesus said, whoever will speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him neither in this age 
or the age to come. Whenever someone attributes the work of God's Holy Spirit to Satan, he or she is in danger of far-reaching eternal consequences. Back to Acts chapter, 40, or Acts chapter 13, verse 46. When the Jews started blaspheming in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. They judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And how could Paul and Barnabas make such a profound pronouncement against them? Again, we have the words of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, Do not judge, lest you be judged. For in the way you judged, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. The scribes and the Pharisees had established their own standard of measure. To the law of God, they added something like 350 do's, one for every day and another 250 don'ts. And then there were categories and subcategories under those hundreds and hundreds of extra laws. And they established that as their standard of measure. And then they stood, as it were, on their standard of measure. And they looked down their crooked fingers and crooked noses at everybody else. And they judged them by the standard of measure that they had established a self-styled standard of measure, and they said to everybody, you guys don't meet the standard. This is the standard. And Jesus said they can't even live up to their own standard, that they're going to be judged by their own standard, and they're going to find that they can't live up to it, and they will be judged unworthy of eternal life. So based on the blasphemous pronouncement of the Jews in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas declare in verse 47, For the Lord has commanded us, you, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And as you would think, this is an extremely good message. This is good news for the Gentiles who had had a positive response to the gospel. This is the sweetness of saving faith. The sweetness of appropriating God's word into our hearts. Verse 49. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. In the history of the world, they had never heard this message. That the Gentiles can be saved. The Jews were supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. They just totally blew that. And so even if a Gentile converted to Judaism, oh, you're still a second-class citizen. You're not really one of God's people. So the first time in the history of the world, Gentiles. And if you're not of Jewish blood here today, you're a Gentile. You trace your spiritual roots right back to here. The Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. God saved those that he wanted to save at that very moment. And here we have the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ in Galatia. But that doesn't mean that all is well in Pisidian Antioch. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city 
and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. Paul and Barnabas did what Jesus had commanded his followers to do in this kind of situation, shake the dust off of their feet. Now to shake off the dust off their feet is a testimony against them. The Jewish custom was whenever you traveled to another land out of Israel, when you returned from that foreign land and you got to the border of Israel, you would shake all the Gentile dust off of your feet before you entered Israel because you didn't want to bring any Gentile contamination into your living room, <laughs> as it were. So in pronouncing judgment, Jesus told the followers to shake off the dust of their feet to those who had rejected him. And by their act, Paul and Barnabas were saying, in effect, they considered the Jews at Antioch to be no better than pagans. No better than pagans. There could be no stronger condemnation against them. These Jews were left to their own obstinate, judgmental unbelief. But the passage ends with a glorious statement concerning those who had come to believe. Verse 52, And the disciples, that is, those who had come to faith in Pisidian Antioch, were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas saw a lot of failure in Pisidian Antioch and had a difficult journey getting there, but the success was sweet. The disciples that they'd left in Pisidian Antioch exhibited several evidence of true saving faith. Several evidences they had indeed received Christ and were following him as his disciples. And we saw that first evidence in verse 49 of Acts chapter 13. They spread the word of the Lord through the whole region. That's what people who have come to faith do. When people get saved, they share. And their sharing extended throughout the whole region of, of Galatia. And more people were saved. And then it says they were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What a contrast. When Paul and Barnabas left the city in Antioch, they left two distinct groups. They left some who considered themselves to be very religious. We've got God's law. We've got the word of God. We've got it all. We are all. We're it. But God saw them as pagans who on account of their blasphemy were unworthy of eternal salvation. And then God filled others with the joy and with the Holy Spirit. You see, there's no middle ground. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. John said, you're either children of the devil or you're children of God. There, there's no in between. Everybody's in one or two of those categories. You either take Jesus or you reject him. You either live your life with God's Spirit inside of you or you live a life separated from God. Shall we pray? Our Father, you have given us a wonderful insight this morning into how people respond to what we consider the good news, the wonderful, glorious, good message of the gospel of Christ. And Father, as I just pray that you would take that insight, Lord, and you would help us to understand where other people that we know and we speak to and people that we love, where they are at in all of this, Father. And give us the grace Give us the words. Give us the want to, Father, to 
to share this glorious gospel with those who are in such a desperate need, Father. Lord, just help us to have an understanding of, of what it means to live a life without Christ, of what it means, Father, to live eternity without Christ. And Father, we pray that that would drive us to prayer, that that would drive us to a desire, that that would drive us to follow the leading of your Holy Spirit, to be instrumental in leading these people to Jesus. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.